Welcome, dear listeners, to the Harrison Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. This episode is going to be focused on Harrison's two presidential campaigns in the elections of 1836 and 1840. However, I have a confession to make. With the 1840 election in particular, it's actually my least favorite part of Harrison's story to read about and, in turn, share with others. The ground is already well-trodden as it's one of the two things that people tend to know about if they know anything about Harrison, Tippecanoe and Tyler too. Besides showing that there were issues involved in the campaign and that it wasn't all singing and carousing, though, to be admitted, there was much of that going on too, it's just overall not that interesting to me. For those interested, I think there are others that can tell the overall story much better than I. For the 1840 election, I'd recommend reading Robert Gray Gunderson's The Log Cabin Campaign, and a recently released book by Ronald G. Schaefer entitled The Carnival Campaign, How the Rollicking 1840 Campaign of Tippecanoe and Tyler II Changed Presidential Elections Forever. Schaefer's book is probably more approachable, while Gunderson's gives a bit more detail into the political aspects and maneuverings. With that said, I'm not just pawning you off on other sources. We're going to talk about the elections in this episode, but instead of the usual linear style that we've taken with most episodes in our Harrison biographical series, I thought we'd pick out some of the more interesting topics in this time in Harrison's life and in the campaigns to highlight in this episode. Sound good? Okay, let's get started. To me, one of the most interesting characters in both the 1836 and 1840 elections is a man that most of you likely have never heard of before. Van Buren's running mate, Richard Mentor Johnson. For those of you paying attention, we have mentioned Johnson a couple of times before in this podcast. As a native of Kentucky, Johnson and Harrison ran in some of the same circles, both at home and in Washington, and Johnson had advocated for Harrison at a couple of key moments in his life. Though he did not mention it here, he did serve under Harrison during the War of 1812 and was present at the Battle of the Thames. Indeed, he would claim, especially around election time, to have killed Tecumseh. Certainly, he killed a Native American warrior in the infamous charge into the swamp. But, as we learned about in episode 18, there was even confusion as to whether Tecumseh was dead at all, much less who actually killed him. It could have been Johnson. It could have been a host of other people. Johnson's supporters, however, were insistent. And as his star rose in the political realm, they would increasingly attack Harrison as an ineffective leader and for not acknowledging that Johnson was the true hero of the battle for killing Tecumseh. However, whether he did or didn't kill Tecumseh was not the most controversial part of Johnson's life. After the war, he had returned home where he lived with his slave Julia Chin as his common-law wife. Yeah, you can imagine what folks thought about that. Johnson made no secret of the relationship as he accepted their two daughters as his own, with both being given his last name. After Julia's death in 1833, he would bring his daughters to Washington and introduce them into D.C. society. Southerners were not too keen on someone who flaunted the mixing of the races, but Andrew Jackson said to put him on the ticket in 1836, so Richard Mentor Johnson went on the Democratic ticket in 1836. Though Van Buren won in 1836 without question, the Virginia electors refused to vote for Johnson, despite his having won the popular vote and abstained from casting their vice presidential ballots, leaving Johnson one short of the votes needed to win election. Thus, as stipulated in the Twelfth Amendment, and in the only time to date this has happened, the names of the top two vote-getters, Johnson and New Yorker abolitionist Francis Granger, went to the Senate for them to decide. Johnson won that vote without question and assumed office. However, as there was little for vice presidents to do at the time, 
He spent most of his time at home, where he tended its business, including opening up a tavern, and got himself into another relationship with an enslaved 18- or 19-year-old woman named Parthine. Folks in Washington started hearing about the doings of the vice president, and Van Buren even sent Amos Kendall to check things out in Kentucky, where he confirmed that Johnson, quote, openly and shamefully lives in adultery. Southern Democrats were appalled. And even Andrew Jackson, by this time, had decided that Johnson would be, quote, a dead weight upon your popularity, were he to be put on the ticket again in 1840. But whether it was out of loyalty or being fed up of being told what to do by Jackson, Van Buren did nothing and decided he saw no reason for a change. With this in mind, the Democrats at their national convention in Baltimore did something that no other party has done before or since. Though they endorsed Van Buren without question, they decided not to nominate a vice presidential candidate, and instead left it up to the states to pick between four regional candidates, with Johnson as one of the four. Since two of the other three candidates were Southerners, it was pretty clear that they just didn't want Johnson, but saw this as the only way of placating everyone. The kerfuffle over Johnson highlights just how completely disorganized the Democrats were in 1840. It seemed at times as if everything was against them. Shortly after Van Buren took office, the country went into an economic downturn that resulted in bank failures, wage drops, and rising unemployment. Supposedly, in his frustration, Van Buren said at one point, quote, Damn the panic! If you would all work as I do, you would have no panic. A number of loyal Democrats worked hard in the 1840 campaign to get out the vote and turn the tide for Van Buren, but it seemed that they were always just one step behind the Whigs. One of the few times that they were ahead of the game ultimately worked in Harrison's favor, when an early attack on Harrison in an article in the Baltimore Republican provided the Whigs with the image that would become synonymous with the campaign. The writer asserted about Harrison to, quote, Give him a barrel of hard cider and settle a pension of 2000 a year on him, and take my word for it, he will sit the remainder of his days in a log cabin. By the next month, the log cabin was being used at the Pennsylvania State Whig meeting as a symbol of Harrison being on the side of the common man, and it took off from there. The Democratic Review, a pro-Van Buren paper, ran an article in June 1840 that, quote, This must be called the log cabin and hard cider campaign and must unquestionably stand without a parallel in our past political history. It represents a totally new phase in our party politics, a new experiment upon our institutions. Though they recognized the influence of democratic tactics taken in past election cycles that were now being used by the Whigs when they wrote, quote, We have taught them how to conquer us. Instead of just being an election in which the Democrats were beaten, there were also a couple of liberating aspects of the 1840 campaign. For one, it was the first election in which women participated in the campaign effort in a large scale, and indeed, they were encouraged to get involved by Whig leaders and organizers, with Whig speakers, including Senator Daniel Webster, speaking to exclusively female audiences. The Whigs even employed the first female author to write political pamphlets for a presidential campaign, a single woman from Fredericksburg, Virginia, named Lucy Kenney. Though they could not vote, it was seen that women could have an influence on male voters. This campaign appeal to women was ridiculed and condemned by Democrats, who felt it would lead to immorality in the family, were mothers to turn their focus to politics and affairs outside of the household. If only the Democrats of 1840 knew who their nominee would be in 2016. 
Another major development in the 1840 election was the appearance for the first time of an organized anti-slavery party, the Liberty Party. Though they wouldn't make much of an impact in the presidential election in 1840, this was the start of a political development that would ultimately lead to the election of Abraham Lincoln 20 years later and contribute to the Civil War soon after that. Indeed, both of these trends marked the inclusion of new participants and new ideas into the American political landscape that would reshape it in the decades and centuries to come. In the meantime, though there were differences between the 1836 and 1840 elections in both participants and results, in some ways there were also key similarities. Each election had one of the major parties experiencing deep divisions that resulted in a loss, while the other party, though having points of internal division, was able to rally long enough to get a new president elected. In 1836, it was the Whigs who were divided, with the electoral votes of the party being split between four candidates. Harrison, Daniel Webster, Senator Hugh Lawson White of Tennessee, and Wiley P. Mangum of North Carolina. Though Mangum had not actively run in the race, or, indeed, entertained any notion of doing so, the state of South Carolina threw its electoral votes to him. Of these candidates, only Harrison showed strong support in more than one section of the country, winning the electoral votes of Delaware, Indiana, Kentucky, Maryland, Ohio, New Jersey, and Vermont. This result is arguably one of the factors that helped him to emerge as the party's candidate in 1840. Meanwhile, Van Buren had already had enemies in the party prior to his ascending to the presidency, and his policies, notably the independent treasury scheme, were seen as violating Jacksonian principles. Coupled with the national economic downturn and the dispute over Van Buren's running mate, quote, the paradox of a people's party under the leadership of a courtly, luxury-loving politician made it all but impossible for Democrats to rally once more around the man from Kinderhook. Van Buren wasn't the only major figure disappointed by how 1840 turned out, however. In past episodes, we've talked about how Henry Clay saw Harrison as a threat to his political ambitions, and indeed, he proved to be as such in 1836 and especially in 1840. In both cases, Clay was eager to throw his hat in the ring again. However, after his not-so-insubstantial loss in 1832 by 170 electoral votes and over 200,000 popular votes, the Whigs in 1836 just weren't eager to get behind him once again. He was getting the smell of defeat about him when it came to presidential elections, and there were numerous other folks they could turn to who might stand a better chance. Clay wasn't too sore about 1836. 1840, though, was another story. There was already optimism in the air about the chances of whoever ended up the Whig candidate, just because whoever it was would not be Van Buren. The nomination was just not meant to be for Clay, however. There were concern amongst Whigs in New York that he would not win the Empire State in its 42 electoral votes. Meanwhile, most of Clay's support came from states that were not likely to vote for any Whig candidate while Harrison enjoyed support from delegations from both the North and the West, including that of the battleground state of Pennsylvania. Thus, on the fourth ballot, the Whig National Convention in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, chose Harrison as the party's nominee. Supposedly, Clay, when he heard that he had lost the nomination to Harrison, threw a fit and stated that, quote, my friends are not worth the powder and shot it would take to kill them. Many have felt over the years since that 1840 was likely Henry Clay's best shot at ever being president, and it ended up going to a guy who Clay 
had identified a while back as a potential rival. He may not have been good at actually getting votes at the ballot box, but Henry Clay could not be accused of slacking and understanding the political landscape. He ultimately cooled down and even got out to campaign for Harrison. After all, a Whig president would be better than another Van Buren term, and one who had a long-standing relationship with Clay and was not as savvy of the ways of Washington might be made to lean on the de facto leader of the Whig party. Clay wasn't above being the power behind the throne, and, if things went well, Harrison had made a one-term pledge. Who knew what 1844 would bring? In the midst of all of this was William Henry Harrison. Beyond the hype of log cabins and hard cider, beyond the singing and the parading, there was the man who had been in leadership roles of one form or another, be they in the public service or in his private life, for the majority of his life. He had had time to reflect on the words that he had written to Simone Bolivar that, quote, In this enlightened age, the mere hero of the field and the successful leader of armies may, for the moment, attract attention, but it will be such as is bestowed upon the passing meteor, whose blaze is no longer remembered when it is no longer seen. To be esteemed eminently great, it is necessary to be eminently good. His approach to both campaigns differentiated him from prior candidates, and one has to wonder if, in his actions, quote, to be esteemed eminently great. Until the 1836 election, candidates for president had allowed others to speak for them, and instead sequestered themselves, answering correspondence but not making public appearances. It was viewed as unseemly to actively seek an office, though, behind the scenes, that's exactly what was going on. Harrison abandoned that approach and took a trip, first to Virginia on the pretense of visiting family, then up the East Coast all the way to New York before returning by way of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Maryland. He attended public dinners in his honor, rode through cities and towns with crowds gathered to view his passing, and appealed to veterans along his journey. Though not billing it as such, Harrison had completed the first presidential campaign tour in U.S. history in the 1836 election and, in the process, had struck a chord with the American people. Thus, it's not surprising that he took to the trail again in 1840. Initially, he had agreed to just let others handle the campaigning as, quote, it might be improper to participate in such spectacle when he actually had a shot at the presidency. But when Democrats attacked him as, quote, a man in an iron cage who was being controlled by his handlers, he hit the trail with his first public speech planned for an anniversary celebration of the Battle of Fort Meigs. However, he was also willing to act impromptu and made an unscheduled speech on the steps of the National Hotel in Columbus, Ohio, while en route to the Fort Meigs celebration. Over the course of a few months, he would end up crisscrossing Ohio and delivering 23 speeches in the campaign that, quote, ranged from one to three hours in length. Though sticking closer to home in 1840, he still was going against the grain and contributed to a fundamental change in electioneering that carries on to the present day. Moreover, it seems that he understood the impact that his decision to actively campaign would have. In remarks in Chillicothe, he discussed the campaigning and asserted that, quote, sometimes I fear that upon me will fall the responsibility of establishing a dangerous precedent to be followed in future time. Whether it was Harrison's efforts or the numerous speakers going across the country on his behalf, or the tons of celebrations and rallies, or the power of the press, or just the fact that the people were tired of Van Buren. Something in the effort worked, and Harrison won the election 
with nearly 1.28 million popular votes and 234 electoral votes. Whigs also won control of Congress, as well as three-fourths of the governorships and control of two-thirds of the state legislatures. This would be the high point in Whig electoral history, and Tippecanoe was the triumphant general once more, having symbolically led the army of Whigs to victory. Next time, he takes office, and we'll see it play out in one of the most dramatic ways imaginable, a lesson that all presidents learn upon taking office. No matter what you say on the campaign trail or plan for your presidency, circumstances have a way of leading you in unexpected directions once you're in the big chair. Until then, please feel free to send any questions or comments to Harrison Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com or reach out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Harrison Podcast, again, all one word. Sources used for this episode, as well as past episodes and supplemental material, can be found at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. Previous episodes can also be found on iTunes and Stitcher. Also, if you haven't already, take a few moments to check out my other podcast, The Presidencies of the United States, where I consider each presidency starting at the beginning. I'm currently going through George Washington's life prior to assuming office in 1789, so it's a great time to hop on board for what promises to be an exciting journey. Thanks so much again for listening, and take care, friends. Until next time.